This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. And my name is Stephen Bradford Long. All right. Well, in the previous episode of Sacred Tension, I had a moderated discussion with the progressive Christian apologist Randall Rouser. And in this episode, we continue our conversation. This conversation originally appeared on Randall Rouser's YouTube channel, and I suggest that you subscribe. There is a link in the show notes. In this episode, Randall asks me questions about Satanism, including why I am drawn to the literary Satan as the ultimate outsider instead of Jesus, and why I am drawn to Satanism instead of humanism. We also discuss the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple, and we explore agreements and potential disagreements. This was a fantastic discussion, and I hope you enjoy. As always, if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Substack. There is a link in the show notes. For $5 a month, you get extra content and you support the long life of my work. And now, I give you my second conversation with Randall Rouser. Uh, Well, I'm pleased today to be joined with Stephen Bradford Long, who's host of the Sacred Tension podcast, a former Christian and current minister in the Satanic Temple. Uh, Stephen, you can get the, give me the correct title in, in a moment. Um, and we recently had a dialogue hosted by John Moorhead, and that was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Stephen is now my favorite Satanist, although admittedly I have got a short list of people I know from this perspective, namely one. Uh, but he's great, and that's why I wanted to have a conversation with him. You can visit him online at stephenbradfordlong.com. Stephen, uh, let's begin by you introducing yourself, giving us a quick synopsis of your journey, how you became a Satanist, and then what that means. Perfect. Thank you so much, and it's such a pleasure to join you. I appreciate your hospitality. So I am a minister of Satan in the Satanic Temple. That does not make me a spokesperson for the Satanic Temple, I have to clarify. So when I, in this conversation, I'm only speaking for myself and perspectives and experiences and not for other members of the Satanic Temple. And I started out Christian. I was raised in a charismatic Presbyterian household, which is a strange combination. I was raised very devout. I was a missionary and youth with a mission. And over time, my faith slowly stopped making sense to me, uh, but I uh, deeply valued the role of religion in my life. And through that process of losing faith, but valuing religion and still finding it important to me, the structures, the rituals, the uh, community, all of that stuff that uh, provided a scaffold for my life, uh, I found all of that in the Satanic Temple when I left the Christian faith in 2017, and I've been with the Temple ever since. And I have been a religious writer and blogger for over a decade. I've mostly written about LGBT issues, but in recent years I've written about non-theistic religion and, um, all, and Satanism in particular and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, From the very get-go, there are some clarifications to make about my Satanism. The first is that I am non-theistic, and the Satanic Temple is non-theistic. So uh, I don't believe any god or gods, 
Satan or the supernatural. Instead, it is a symbolic religion. Satan is a symbol uh, that helps us orient our lives towards our deeply held values. Um, Second, it is rooted in the literary Satan, first found in Paradise Lost. And then there's a long literary tradition of envisioning Satan as the ultimate outsider, as a revolutionary, as the one who stands up against arbitrary authority. Uh, So much less inspiration found in the biblical Satan or in the Christian Satan. Third, it is important to note that Satan and the Satanic Temple is not the ultimate symbol of evil. He is not the ultimate evil. In fact, he is a fictional figure who is a hero and champion of the outsider. And fourth, the Satanic Temple and the Church of Satan are two different organizations. So the Church of Satan was founded in 1960, in the 1960s uh, by Anton LaVey. It was also non-theistic. The Satanic Temple was founded in, I believe, 2013. They have very different principles apart from kind of the shared non-theistic view of Satan. And so, yeah, those are some necessary clarifications to get out of the way up front, uh, because I people always have questions immediately. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking, I, t- I took a course on John Milton in university, so I was thinking what his thoughts would be about the Satanic he would Temple be, being he would inspired. Be horri- he would be horrified. Yeah. He would be he would be absolutely horrified, and he's probably spinning in his grave for sure. <laughs> well, you know, it's a I don't know five hundred page poem, Paradise Lost, but it's true that the the most memorable character in the whole poem is Satan. That's right. So, um, I after we we talked after we talked with John, um, I was thinking. I should have actually taken the time to pull the quote up, but there's this quote from G.K. Chesterton from his book, Orthodoxy, where he says he went out to found a heresy of his own. And when uh, at the end of all his journeyings, he discovered it was orthodoxy. Yes. One thing I I love about that quote is it says, you know what? The the most sort of the biggest rebel of all is Christianity, the, the God revealed in Jesus Christ for example, who doesn't exercise power and control over others, but submits and realizes the, the, the power in submission when you have power, right? Um, in the pacifistic stance, for example. And time and again, when we see people like uh, in the civil rights movement, for example, that have taken Jesus seriously in his pacifistic stance and so on, that this can change the world. And it's a pretty radical vision that the, the most heterodox or heretical view as orthodoxy. So straight out of the gate, I'm going to say, why not go to Jesus as the symbolic representative rather than the literary character of Satan to achieve the things you want to achieve? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the creedal claims that are confessed within Christianity, because the answer is I wanted to. You know, there was this season when I was very interested in pursuing a non-theistic Christianity uh, because I could no longer believe in the Trinity and the miraculous claims and so on and so forth. You know, all, all of those all of those really central claims that have been central 
through Christian history and are still today. Uh, that doesn't mean that people who don't believe them aren't Christian. Of course there are Christians who don't accept, who don't literally believe the creeds and all that. You know, there's a broad variety of Christians. So there was a period when I wanted to, because I still see Christ as a as a beautiful symbol. But I had spent my entire life fighting for my inclusion in the church as a gay person. And that was the big fight of my 20s. And I did a lot of work and a lot of activism and a lot of writing and a lot of organizing and all of that stuff. Uh, And by the time I lost my faith and I was looking to explore a, a place within Christianity where I didn't have to affirm the creeds, where I, I couldn't say, I believe this is true. I can't even trust that these are true. I have no faith, but, the, but you're absolutely right that Christ is this ultimate outsider figure as well. Um, I wanted to have a place within Christianity where I could do that, and I just couldn't find it in my particular communities, even in progressive communities, you know. And and by that time, I was so tired of fighting that I just decided that fight was over. I had decided that I had had enough fighting. And I wanted to go to a place where I didn't have to fight to carve out what I thought was true. I think it is true that homosexuality is morally acceptable, and I thought that it was um, true, and I think that it is true that there is no God um, in a supernatural deity with consciousness, with will, with volition, who interacts in our world. Um, I wanted a religious community where I didn't have to fight for that, I, it, but where that was— part an intrinsic part of the religious community and i found that within tst and it i just took to it immediately and i've been there ever since so the the answer is is really quite personal i i don't think that um you know i i will never say that that my life journey is purely rational i'm not a vulcan um it came out of i i let i left Christianity, I think, because I stopped believing, and then because I stopped believing, I left it because of fatigue, because I just was not willing to fight anymore in a place that felt inhospitable to me. When I when I take a look at what the Satanic Temple seems to stand for, including the sort of naturalistic stance, the embrace of science and reason and things like that, autonomy, maybe a libertarian spirit in there. Anyway, it seems to me, it's like you could probably find all that stuff in humanism. So um, could you see yourself just identifying with humanism or is there room for a sort of interreligious dialogue between humanism and satanic temple or, or what are the key differences? Yeah. So, I mean, the key differences I think is that humanism, uh, I am, I would say that most of my values are are could be described as humanist, but the the problem is that humanism doesn't have a central guiding myth and narrative and symbol 
and symbolic structure around which people can lead their lives, you know, and that's important. We're human beings, we're storytelling creatures, and having that, having a symbolic structure and a, and a, and a canon of stories and myths and parables and symbols and icons around which we can perform rituals and bond and have that cathartic experience and all of that stuff. That's we're human. That's important. Um, Humanism does not have that. And so that's why I always found humanism lacking, even if, even though I agree generally with humanism, but what was lacking was just that, that human, human, needing to needing a story needing a myth and i won't say that that's true of everyone um you know i don't think that's true of richard dawkins um dawkins probably came out of the womb that way um so i won't say that everyone needs what i need but i do think that in order for i am happiest when i have a narrative structure that provides myth and community and symbol. Well, I actually uh, do think that someone like Dawkins does deeply resonate with those categories. But when I read like his book, I think it's the magic of reality. I mean, he talks about nature in a very transcendent and sacramental way. Uh, and, and the inquiry into nature and understanding our place in the processes of the evolution, the development of life, and so on. So someone like like um, like Dawkins or Carl Sagan, I think, was another great example. They often are much more quote unquote religious and and involved, even though they wouldn't characterize it as myth making or building this narratival structure in which they inhabit reality. I do think that does describe them. Um, how about then we segue to talk about these seven fundamental tenets of the Satanic Temple? Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so at this point, we can kind of think of this as an interreligious dialogue, or as it would be described sometimes within a Christian tradition, an ecumenical dialogue, or intra-religious in that case, where you're trying to see where can we have shared common belief and practice. So uh, if I look to the first, and it's going to be, so here's the spoiler alert that I think we're going to find a surprising amount of congruity and agreement between these seven tenets. But I also want to press maybe on some points where there's disagreement and also uh, maybe get into the epistemological question of why accept these, like where do they come from? So we'll, we'll get there, but let's start off with the first one. So the first tenet, one should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason. Tell me what that means to you and why it's important to you. Yeah, we should uh, strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason. So, I take as my foundation, so we, we have to kind of actually step back. For me personally, we have to step back and look at why this is important to me, which is consciousness matters to me. And... I am a conscious creature. I am capable of experiencing suffering and experiencing fulfillment and joy. And I believe that other creatures are conscious 
um, that other human beings are conscious. Human consciousness matters to me a, a great deal. And then there is other consciousness in the world as well, animal consciousness, cat consciousness of my six cats wandering around the room that you can't see right now. Um, and consciousness matters, and it matters to me that I enhance the flourishing of conscious creatures and reduce suffering. Now, I know that I am running afoul of an is-ought distinction there, which is the fact that conscious creatures are capable of suffering does not tell us that we innately should reduce that suffering, right? That is a leap, and I know it's a leap, and I accept that it's a leap. Um, why does it matter to me? All I can say is that at a fundamental level, it matters to me that I don't suffer and also that other conscious creatures, conscious creatures don't suffer. And therefore, compassion, the, the act of wanting to alleviate the suffering of, of other conscious creatures, that matters to me. And I have decided to orient my life around that goal. So now within reason, um, I just take that to, to mean that there are, uh, in given situations, reasonable limitations. And we can, actually, we can actually get to how each of the tenets limits the other tenets. Um, and I need to think a bit more about the within reason and what exact, what, what nest, what, like exact case studies that would play out in of within reason, but I I just take it to mean that we we have to think through how we care for other conscious creatures uh, rationally. I guess is how I would put that. So so for you it it doesn't maybe entail something like. Um veganism but it could for someone who is a satanist yes oh and that that this is actually a really important point the the tenets are not prescriptive they are starting points for dialogue within the temple and so at least in my opinion they are and so what i there are roiling debates constantly within the temple over what the tenets mean. And so there are people who will take it hard in a vegan direction. There are other people who will take it in other directions. And part of the beauty of it is the kind of the point is the dialogue. The point is that we have these core tenets, but we figure out what they mean within community and as individuals, and it, the debate will never end. It's almost kind of Talmudic in that way. You know, it's almost like how, you know, it, the, it, part of the religious life is the debate. That's how the religious life manifests itself. And so there's a lot of discussion within TST about how these tenets should be lived out. Okay. Um, it may be fair to say then that the function of the fundamental tenets certainly at least on your take, is that these seven tenets, they function as a centering document in a sense, rather than a boundary document, which would be a similar distinction within Christian discussions about the function of creeds or statements of belief. Uh, some people want to view them and apply them as boundary documents. If you don't affirm everything the way I affirm it, you're not in the club. Others are saying, no, these are more functioning as centering documents. These are shared values and beliefs, but there's going to be blurring around the edges, but we have a shared interest 
in commitment to the, the statements here and living them out, whatever that ends up looking like. So closer to a, to a centering document. Yeah. I've never heard that, that distinction. And I really like that. And I would say that's accurate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Number two, the, the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. I mean, this, this has Jesus all over it from my yes, it perspective. Does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he's talking about, well, what, look, what, what is the, what is the Sabbath for? Was was were we made to serve the Sabbath? There's a Sabbath made to serve us, for example. Um, so there, I think there's a lot of agreement here. But but let's just say, well, what is justice? How how do you and I, again, clearly you're speaking for yourself, as you said, not TST, but for you, what does justice look like? It's one of those questions that seems justice seems so obvious until you're presented with a question like that. What is justice or what does justice look like? Uh, you could approach a question in either direction. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think of justice primarily in the context of what I see as fundamental human rights and the lifting of impositions on fundamental human rights, the right to you know the the right to employment the right to speech the right to health care the right to be who you are you know i it it's interestingly this is one of those points of the tenets that i haven't thought deeply about because i've it's always been a given for me but as i'm sitting here thinking about it it it's hard to say it's like pornography i know it when i see it or it's like when when uh when um, Augustine was asked to define time, he says, you know, I, I know it un- until I try to describe it. Oh, that's, it. So that's a much better, com- that's a much better example. Let's go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy question. Yeah. But, no, but, I'm going to have to think more justice? about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the third one is the one that I think there's probably going to be the most disagreement on. So maybe we can camp here for a little bit. So yes. here's the third tenet. One's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. All right, obviously, from a Christian perspective, human creatures are, are not the fundamental owners of themselves, as it were, but our, our very existence is on loan from a being that created and sustains us, ultimately for his purposes and his glory. But I, but I want to kind of maybe go down something a little more practical, which is uh, we, we just passed through a pandemic. Um, and in the pandemic, one of the big issues here is what are our rights and responsibilities to other human beings? If, and I don't want to get into the questions about, well, were particular vaccines effective or not? I think they were. Others can disagree. Let's just say that that we have vaccines that are 95% effective against a very serious illness that can be fatal. Um, should there, for example, be pressures, vaccine mandates that pro- provide pressures, including economic ones, for people to be vaccinated, at what point is that an imposition on their bodily autonomy? Or uh, a parent over a child, parent taking their child to, to get their MMR vaccine or something, is that a violation of the child's bodily autonomy? So is this an absolute principle? Does it get curtailed in certain circumstances? Yeah, good questions, and this is exactly the kind of stuff that gets debated all the time. Um, I think an important 
thing to acknowledge here is that the tenets don't exist within isolation. And I really think, and I think that's incredibly important because I think any single principle, maybe not any single principle, but many single principles when they are on their own and isolated from other principles that constrain them, they become pathological. And so, you know, you can look at any number of these tenets and kind of think through ways in which if they are all else being equal, if they are just taken as their own as a single principle, they become, they can become pathological, even really positive seeming ones. And this is definitely true here as well. And so I would first say that it needs to be constrained by the, uh, by the uh, fifth tenet, which is the one about one should never distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. Well, if the science on vaccines is established, then um, that constrains bodily autonomy. That constrains what a Satanist can do with bodily autonomy, right? And so... um, same, same with compassion. One should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason. Well, that constrains, therefore, what we do with our own bodies because we are ourselves conscious creatures and is something compassionate that we might do to ourselves. And so I think a lot of the stressors and I, I think a lot of the concerns that we might have might not completely diminish, but at least things become easier to navigate when we take all the seven tenets as a unit rather than isolated things. So um, my personal approach is uh, vaccine denial is opposed, is in violation of the fifth tenet. That is distorting scientific facts to fit one's belief. It is very well established that vaccines are one of the greatest benefits to humankind ever, and the mRNA vaccine uh, is safe. Uh, and and is it com- and going back to tenet one, isn't co- is it compassionate to other conscious creatures? Is it compassionate to fellow human beings to deny my own vaccine? To say no for the sake of my own bodily autonomy, I won't take this. Well, that jeopardizes the elderly, people with compromised immune systems, people who can't take vaccines, and so they're relying on herd immunity. You know, all of and that jeopardizes them, right? And so, to me, it's a very clear cut. Um, now, there, I'm sure that there. I don't think there are many TST members who disagree with me in that, but there probably are. Uh, but that's how I interpret it. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Um, we'll go through the other ones. I'm, I just wanted to ask before I forget, as an aside, how many people would identify with the Satanic Temple globally? Do you have an idea? I forget what the last number was. I I hear. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, but I think it's one hundred thousand. Okay. Um, quite small. Uh, well, yeah. I mean. It's not insignificant. Not sure. in, not insignificant. Um, it might it might have surpassed that by now. It might be slightly lower than that. But it it was in that ballpark, I think. But please don't, <laughs> everyone sure. listening and watching, please uh, please yeah. don't quote me on that because I might be very wrong. But it it's definitely a a surprisingly large number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, number four, the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego one's own. Uh, I, what's interesting here, okay, freedom should be respected. Fair enough, including the freedom to offend. Why explicitly mention that one rather than mentioning, let's say, several? Like, why does that one mm. get pride of place, as it were? Yeah, um, I think because offense is a one of the primary driving motivators for why we want to infringe on each other's freedom. No one ever wants to infringe on someone who they think is fine, you know, who isn't offensive, whose whose actions aren't aren't, you know, keeping us up at night. It's only the it's it's only the people who get under our skin. It's only the people who kind of drive us a bit crazy and who might offend us whose freedoms we want to restrict. And so that's why that's why people want to I mean there I can I'm sure I can imagine other reasons why someone would want to restrict people's freedoms, dogmatic belief uh that might not be rooted in offense, but but offense is a big part of it, you know, people restrict the freedoms of LGBTQ people in part because they find it deeply offensive. There, it, it, there's a disgust element there that it triggers for them. So I think offense gets special mention because offense is so often one of the big motivators for speech, for, for, for infringing on others' actions or speech or or fundamental rights. Uh, Martha Nussbaum has a really great book called From Disgust to Humanity about how so much racism and homophobia and legislation against racism and homophobia was was based on kind of this visceral disgust. And disgust mm -hmm. and offense are just so like these deep fundamental emotions that feel so righteous. Well, we have to second guess those feelings sometimes. Yes. Um I mean, some disgust, like the disgust of a child predator raping a child or the disgust of one human being eating another one because they like the taste of the meat is well-placed. But we have to be very careful. Other disgusts are non-moral in nature. That's right. Or maybe against morality for sure. That's right. Um, okay, tenet five, belief should, never, should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts if it one's belief. You referenced this already. Um, and that we, we mentioned this, I think, briefly in our first conversation. I wanted to just come back to that where I had said, I mean, I don't have any problem with that, but I would just say, why not embed that to, rather than just scientific understanding, our best understanding, and rather than just scientific facts, just say facts. Because there are so many ways that our biases can distort the truth that is available to us or the things that we should be believing based upon the evidence. It's not limited to science. I admit science is important, but why not expand principle five, tenet five, and have it broader than just scientific understanding? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I have no argument with that. I think that science is necessary, but it isn't. There, there are other truths. There are truths that apart from scientific truths, absolutely. And so I agree with you there. What, what we also talk, touched on last time, maybe is worth noting here, is you noted that, that TST began contextually as a North American movement. 
And so part I think of, I, it's often been said, like you can tell what the Apostle Paul, the problems were in the churches he was writing to based upon the things he talks about. And so you can kind of see perhaps some of the things that the tenets address here are a reflection of the context in which they were formed, Absolutely. where there is a lot of distortion, like young earth creationism, right? Or denial of climate change, human-induced climate change, or vaccine denial, et cetera. Okay. Yes, all 100%. And I can imagine that if it started in another country, you know, if Tia, it, it would probably position the their tenets differently, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we've got two more, and we've got about seven, eight minutes left, so I think we're making decent time. Let's do it. Uh, tenet six, people are fallible. If one makes a mistake, one should do one's best to rectify it and resolve any harm that one that might have been caused. I don't know. I don't have much problem there. It seems to me pretty thoroughly undeniable that human beings are fallible. Um, yes. Anything you want to say about that one in particular? Just that this is the one that I come back to regularly. You know, I, I have these tenets front of mind uh, day after day after day. I meditate on them every day. And this is the one that I find myself needing to return to the most. Uh, because I am deeply flawed, and I often have to apologize. So this is, and, and this tenet uh, motivates me to do that. So it's helpful to have a, a set of, of um, moral starting points that encourage me to uh, follow through with that. Yeah. The fact that you said you meditate on them every day, and that it kind of is a launching point for me to to ask a big question prior to the discussing the seventh tenet, and that is the, the question of authority. So um, we could also get into here the question of, of epistemology, of knowledge, and so on. So you know, if you ask a Christian, well, why do you believe X, Y, and Z? Well, they say, well, I believe God revealed in the Bible, or something like that. If you ask somebody else, like a humanist, they might have a different explanation for why they endorse the humanist manifesto. What would your response be for why you grant these seven tenets that kind of authority in your right in your life to be centering points of daily meditation rather than some other statement like the Humanist Manifesto or the Tao Te Ching or something else? I think it's because it was the best. It it was the best crystallization of the values that I was already trying to live. And so it was kind of this external representation of the things that I already believed at that point. But also, it made it livable in the context of community. And I think that's really important, it, because I am accountable to the community. As a minister, I am accountable to the community. And so it, it made—so the tenets, seven of them, they're very simple. That's nice. Um, and they, they, it's a starting point— for discussion and attempting to live a good life, but yeah, two things. They were a confirmation of what I already believed, and second, uh, the the communal aspect of it makes me accountable to them, and I think that's helpful. Okay. Tenet seven. Uh, every tenet is a guiding principle designed to inspire nobility in action and thought. The spirit of compassion, wisdom, and justice should always prevail 
over the written or spoken word. I have a couple of questions about this. First one, is it fair to say that this is kind of uh, leaning toward a situation ethic over against a deontological ethic? Or do you think that this tenet just underdetermines, doesn't really address that sort of question of normative ethical framework? Could you define those terms for me? You used a word, deontological. Okay, so a deontological refers to a deont obligation. So the idea that ethics is founded on rule following, following of moral obligations, classically identified with Immanuel Kant and his categorical imperative, you always ought to act so as that your action could be will the universal law. And, and Kant's approach to ethics is standardly equated with identifying what the right principles are and then following the principles. So if you're in a library and it says do not reshelve books and you take a book off the shelf, you cannot put it back. Um, you have to technically go put it in the library cart and let the library and put it back because that's what the rule says. But what you're saying, or what the principle tenet seven says here is, now, heed the spirit of compassion, wisdom, and justice. So it's a much more contextualized approach to ethical reflection, like a situation approach. It says you have to look at the specific situation to discern what the right thing is, and whether you have to go to the library card or whether you can just put the book back on the shelf yourself. Yes, absolutely. And and also, there's a really good story that illustrates this. So when... Early in TST history, which was a decade ago, <laughs> um, uh, at the beginning, when um, I don't know if it was at the beginning, I think it was this was 2015 or something, uh, when they were when Malcolm and Lucian and and other people at headquarters in Salem were making the Baphomet statue, uh, which is the really famous uh, Baphomet with children statue that everyone who has ever seen any news story about TST is familiar with, They're, they were presented with, an, with the option of putting the seven tenets on the back of the statue, on the back of the chair that Baphomet is sitting in. And they decided against it because that is exactly the opposite of what they would want to do. They don't want to set this in stone. Uh, because that is in violation of this tenet. At, at some point, there might be a limitation of these tenets. There might be a limitation, and, or, there, or it might be more complicated, or whatever the case may be. And so the, the seventh tenet is, to, is, is a reminder to not set these words in stone, literally or otherwise, but that we should always strive for the spirit of compassion, wisdom, empathy, etc. Okay, um, we're pretty much out of time, but I wanted to ask one question that seems to me big. Okay, uh, biggest, you know, like biggest said, for last? <laughs> Why not? Why not? We've got two minutes left, I'll drop the bomb. No, um, Like I said, there's a lot I agree with. One thing I noted was absent was the word love. And I was wondering if there's a reason why the word love is not anywhere in the tenets. So it's interesting because I interpret compassion as love. And so you aren't the first person actually to point this out to me. Um, but to me, I, I had always just seen compassion and love as maybe essentially synonymous with each other. Um, so why that particular word love was not used, I don't know. Uh, but 
but compassion is used. And I think, and, and for me personally, compassion, compassion is kind of, is, is such a huge, all-encompassing, you know, it, it's such a, such an important word to me um, to, to abide in the suffering of others, to want the best for someone else, to have profound feelings of care for someone else. That's what compassion means to me, I think. So, so in my view, love is in the tenets, but maybe not that particular word. Okay. Well, that's a good answer. Stephen, uh, it's been wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your perspectives. And I think that we've accomplished something which a lot of people at the outset probably didn't think was possible, which was significant theological and ethical agreement on some pretty basic principles between Christians and Satanists. For sure. Absolutely. And I would love to talk more. This has been great. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care.